So I won't bother to move it on, to change it and put it on again. In the first man, Adam, you came into the world in sin, condemnation, death, and guilt. And in the last, Adam, you are born again in justification, righteousness, life, and peace. And what you have in the case of the first man, Adam, is altogether due to what the first man, Adam, is. And what you have in the last, Adam, is altogether due to what the last, Adam, is. Again, the summarizing verse of the whole matter is verse 19 of Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall the many be made righteous. We noted to you at the outset of this that the word one is the paramount word in Romans 5 from verse 12 and onward, and that it occurs 12 times in the chapter as a whole, seven times of the first man Adam, three times of the Lord Jesus, the last Adam, one time of Adam's act, and one time of the Lord Jesus' act. The word one there is pronouncing the fact that we, every one of us, have the source of our life in one individual. We either have the source of our life in the first man Adam or the source of our life in the last Adam. Now, the implications of this are tremendously important. The importance of this becomes the foundation for everything that we appropriate from the Lord in the future. If we do not understand thoroughly our foundation in Christ, then we are not going to be in a position to uh, receive from him the blessings that he offers uh, as a part of the kingdom of God, because we're going to be questioning our right to receive. Now, do we all understand what we're saying by that? If we cannot come boldly before the Lord to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, then we're going to question, every time we ask God for anything or seek God to do anything, we're going to question whether or not our merits um, uh, give me the prerogative to be able to say this. So we've got to get our merits out of the way once for all. We follow that now. So that in the last man, Adam, altogether your merits are in Christ, just as in the first man, Adam, all of your demerits were because of him. You came into the first man, Adam, wholly apart from anything you could do or had anything to do with. By the same token, you come into the last Adam wholly apart from anything that you have anything to do with. You come into the, first or the last Adam in justification, and justification sets the groundwork for the new birth. You are born again because you're justified. You are not justified, um, you are not justified because you're born again. There we got it. You're not justified because you're born again. You are born again because you're justified. I got two or three things going through my once here. It's not working out right. All right, so and again in the words of the psalmist, the Lord saves the righteous. He first of all makes you righteous, and then he saves you. All right? Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead makes me a partaker in the last Adam. The Old Testament believers were still in the first man, Adam, but they knew justification by faith. God has brought me into the last Adam in justification by faith, but with that new birth has brought to me the salvation of God. All of the Old Testament believers knew justification. You follow this progression? This is a parenthesis. You are justified by faith. You are saved by grace. Yes? And your anticipation of the resurrection is in hope. You follow that now? You are justified by faith, Romans 5.1. You are saved by grace, Ephesians 2.8. And the anticipation of the, hope of, the, of the resurrection is in hope. You're saved by hope in the salvation there to which Paul addressed in Romans 8 is the salvation of the body, resurrection of the body. Okay, anyone have any questions about that matter of federal headship now? We can go on and elaborate on it more, and we will if it's necessary. Anything, anything that needs to be commented? Oh, oh, that phrase, yes. You're, <laughs> I was say, you're justified by faith, Romans 5.1. You're saved by grace, Ephesians 2.8. And your resurrection is in hope, 2.8. 2.8. 
through 8 and 9, but 2 8 is the verse that you're particularly concerned uh, with. Romans 8 and verse uh, 20. Let's look at it quickly. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Notice, it's anticipating a hope, a hope that's seen is not hope, Paul said. Move over to verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. So what is he viewing? There are two adoptions in the Scripture. There's an adoption which is spiritual, Galatians chapter 4. There's an adoption which is physical, Romans chapter 8. It is the adoption physical here that he addresses. As we have spiritually been made sons, we will in that day physically be made sons. As we are now growing to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ, in that day we will be conformed to the image of his Son. That's a finished work. So that this adoption that he addresses is in hope. Verse 24, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now he isn't talking about being saved here in the accepted traditional sense. He's talking about the resurrection of the body. And that is in hope. You haven't seen that yet. All right? You follow that. So they were justified under the Old Testament record uh, by faith, but they were never born again. Now, I cannot overemphasize that. Don't put the new birth on Isaac or Abraham or Jacob or Saul or David or any of the rest of the Old Testament saints. None of them were ever born again. The new birth altogether is associated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and the new birth is only seen two times in the Scripture. In 1 Peter, that is the term new birth. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, and in verse 23 of chapter 1. You're following now. The term anagao only occurs here in 1 Peter 1. I know it's translated born again in John 3, but that is not born again. When we come to our section on the sovereignty of God, and we're getting close to it, we'll deal with that, that passage, I mean, more particularly. But the new birth only occurs here. So, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who has begotten us again, or born us again, that's the word, anaganao, to a living hope, how? It's the next phrase. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you weren't born again until Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and you were raised in him. That's new birth. Romans chapter 6 is an exposition of the new birth. And it is by that act that you are moved from the first man, Adam, to the last Adam, through the death of, of the Lord Jesus on the cross and identification in his resurrection. That then brings you new birth. And it is because of that new birth that as you had before the life of Adam imparted to you, now you have the life of Jesus Christ imparted to you. That's the message of Galatians 2.20, is it? no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in faith shall live by the faith of, not faith in. You all got that? Not faith in, faith of. If you don't have the faith of, you'll never have faith in. But because you have been imparted the faith of, you therefore have faith in. Faith starts as a gift of God, and it starts here. You see, in your walk in Christ, it is the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, or gave himself up for me. So that now the nature of the Lord Jesus becomes my portion here. Now, as then I was in Adam condemned and couldn't do anything about that, I am in righteousness in Christ, and you can't do anything about that either. Hmm? That's a jolly thought. You follow that now. As you are not a participant here, neither are you a participant here. I'm getting some incredible looks. 
Romans 5.13, that's exactly what it is. Romans 5.13. That's why Paul said in Romans 9, if it's works, it's no more grace, and if it's grace, it's no more works. Now, you need to make up your mind which one you want to live under. Um, and interestingly, Paul, writing to the Galatians, said, uh, he, uh, concerning the works of the law, he said, he that doeth them shall live by them. If you want to do the works of the law, if you want to set that as a standard of your Christian behavior, then you're going to live on the level of what the law can do. Just to, for example, let's take giving. If you want to live on the level of the law in giving, the law says, you tithe and God will bless. Hmm? That's right. Law says that. God says, you tithe, and I'll give you what you need. Uh, Grace says, if you don't tithe, I'll still give you what you need. Hmm? That's right. And it further says that when you do give, I might take away what you need. You all still out there? <laughs> do you know why? You see, grace is not, or I'm sorry, law is not maturing me as a son. It's a leaving me a child. And child are given, and as they obey, you know, it's kind of smack wrong and candy right, as one brother said. It's the way you deal with a dog. You know, you, you want to train a dog to do something. If he does wrong, you smack him. If he does right, you give him a piece of dog candy. And pretty soon, he does right because of the dog candy, and he does, doesn't do wrong because he doesn't want to get smacked. And that's how the law handles me. But it never matures me. But as I come into grace, then God wants to raise me up as a son. And therefore, though I'm doing right, he may withhold everything because he is maturing my faith. Do you see? But you'll grow up as a son that way, but you'll never grow up as a son under the law. So you can have a choice. You can, they that do them shall live by them. If you can live on the level of the law and know of a surety that as you do this, God's going to do this, and everything will work out fine, and it'll go along very smoothly, but you'll stay a child the rest of your life. But there comes a time when your children are put in a position that they have to look after themselves. Hmm? Or, or you all who have grown children, are you still feeding them? Do they still have they brought their children home with them to you and now you are taking care of them? Oh, you are. <laughs> are you seeing what we're saying then? There is no maturity in that. There comes a point then when God begins to mature an individual as a son and he is given the privilege then to walk as a son and the, and the regulations of the law will not do that for him. Well, anyhow, close parenthesis on that. So he brings us in then to a new relationship in Christ Jesus over which I had no control. He's done that himself. I know that shatters uh, our thinking with regard to free moral agency, and I'm going to talk about this very quickly right now because I know what's running through everybody's mind, um, at least some of you. Anyway. Uh, we will have to speak to this again later on. But we use that phrase, free moral agency, rather freely without really stopping to think what we've said. We define man as a free moral agent without recognizing that when you say uh, free and moral, you've said one thing, but when you say agent, you've said something else entirely. What is an agent? Oh, somebody acts for somebody else. huh? So every man is a free moral agent. Every man's acting for somebody else. Every man. He's either acting on behalf of Satan or he's acting on behalf of God, one of the two. So in that sense, he's a free moral agent. And as long as you were in the first man, Adam, as a free moral agent, you could do good things and bad things. Yes? Is that right? Do good things, bad things. Uh, lost people do good things. Lost people do bad things. Hmm? As a matter of fact, lost people do some things better than a lot of saved people do. I get that out correctly. A lot of them walk more consistently moral lives than a lot of justified people do, without question. But does all of that ever get them out of here? It does not. They can do all the good things they want to, and they'll simply bounce off and come back to the other side with another good thing and bounce off and go to the other side and bounce off with all of their good things. All right, by the same token, well, won't preempt that. 
The only thing that can get you out of this state is, die, is death. That's what condemnation is all about. God does not forgive condemnation. He slays it. He that believeth not is condemned already, and the solution to that is death. The only solution to that is death. You never find forgiveness of sin. One, uh, uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, uh, no, verse 2, I'm sorry. He condemns sin, 2, 3. Let me look at it. I'll have you in the wrong address. 3, I'm sorry. For what the law could not do in his weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't condemn the flesh. Yes, he didn't condemn the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Should I emphasize this while I'm here? Remember again that the flesh in itself is not sinful. The problem with the flesh is it's what? Weak. Not sinful, weak. But because it's weak, it produces the works of the flesh, which are in turn sinful. Uh, a weak uh, vessel trying to perform the act of God falls short, and anything that falls short is then sin. You follow that? That's Romans 3.23. All of sin and what? Come short of the glory of God. That's a continuous action. Continually come short of the glory of God. Because that's the ability of the flesh. It's weak. So he's condemned sin in the flesh. So I have died to my relationship in the first man, Adam. Now again, to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, before Abraham could come into the land of Canaan, his father Terah had to die at Haran. What is that a figure of? The old man, precisely. Before we could ever enter into the blessings of God, then we had to die to the old man. The old man had to die to us. So by the cross we're slain to it. Before the children of Israel could come into the land of Canaan, the fathers had to die in the wilderness. It's a principle that falls all the way through the Scripture. Before we can, then, can come into the kingdom of God, then we have to die to our relationship to the first man, Adam. For, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. All that are in Adam die. All that are in Christ are made alive. And the issue is not how they behaved in either case. The issue is which one are they in? Uh, are you still with us? I'm still getting incredible looks. Um, the whole emphasis here is what is positional, not what is experiential. Now, experience comes out of position, but I've got to understand first my position before the experience flows from it. That's why Paul says, if knowing therefore that your old man is crucified, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed alive unto God. But you can't reckon on what you don't know. So we have to understand this first. So I have died to the first man, in order that I might be raised in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus. Now, as I am raised in the last Adam of the Lord Jesus, and I'm looking at the negative side of this for obvious reasons, I might, by like token, do a lot of bad things, and I keep bouncing off the walls doing those bad things. But none of those bad things I may do in the last Adam will ever get me out of the last Adam. Just as in the first man, Adam, I could not remove myself from that position, so in the last Adam, I cannot remove myself from that position. It becomes int of interest to me that when Noah went into the ark, that God shut him in. Remember that? That implies something very obvious. If God shut him in, then God's got to let him out. All right. So that we come into this then by death and resurrection, something which God on our part accomplished 2,000 years before, remembering again that all of your sin when Jesus died was yet future, wasn't it? And all of that sin was nailed to the Lord Jesus in the tree, and God identified you as his in that cross. And he therefore raised you from the dead by an act of his will and not yours, and established you in righteousness in Christ Jesus. Now, because he has done this, certain things flow out from it. That as here on the general whole, 
unrighteousness has come from it. Here, on the general whole, righteousness has come from it. We're talking about experience here now, how people behave. You follow that? Okay. Well, any questions before I go on from that? You don't have to agree with it. Do you understand it? All right. Now, this is the experience of the child of God, then, as he is born again. The whole idea of the phrase born again is to note that this birth wasn't adequate, that there had to be another birth which was adequate. Now, to set the stage for something in the future, there are two groups of people that come out of the first man, Adam. One of the sections of our study here is the seed of Abraham. There are two groups of people that come out of the uh, first man, Adam, those who are indeed the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. I have to say this at this point, give you a little time to chew on it until we get there more fully. But as a child of God, as a born-again believer, perhaps use a more traditional term, as a born-again believer, here now, there never was a time when the devil was your father. Now, uh, you've got to understand that with all of our tradition behind us, we have convinced ourselves on the basis of one passage of Scripture, which we have not taken time to really pursue seriously, we have ascertained that everybody that comes into this world has the devil for their father, and therefore we will preach to them vehemently that you're of your father the devil and the lust of your father you'll do and if you don't want the devil to be your father then come to Jesus Christ and you'll get a new father. Now there is really no biblical, biblical basis for saying that. When Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees that they were of their father the devil and the lust of their father they would do, the emphasis in the context is the distinction between those that hear his voice and those that don't. And those that hear his voice are the children of God, and those that don't are the children of the devil. You come into this world with a capability of either having ears to hear or not having ears to hear. And the distinction is made then between what is the Lord's and what is, uh, what is the devil's. You all still with me? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. In Romans 8, uh, 12 and 13, if you look at that, mm -hmm. what, what does it mean by, uh, uh, like if we keep on doing this, even after we know, it, it says we shall perish. Die. Yeah. Paul says, he that liveth in sin, she that liveth in sin, is dead while she yet liveth. He's talking about a sphere in which we walk. As a citizen of the United States, if I go to Mexico and break the laws of Mexico, I'm subject to the laws of Mexico even though I'm a citizen of this country. If I move out of the sphere of life and walk in the sphere of death, that doesn't change my citizenship, but it changes my experience considerably. This is what Paul is addressing here. That's why he's... That's not referring... It's not in contradiction from 8, 3, and 4 in that area. Not at all. Not at all. He's building the sphere of our ministry, and the sphere of our ministry can be in life or in death. So that's why I said in Romans 6, how should we that are, that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Uh, what's, why should living people go live in death? You see, that's a contradiction. So he's exhorting us not to walk after the flesh because the flesh only brings forth death. It's weak. And death brings forth sin. Uh, that's an interpretation. That's not a translation. Did you read that from from your uh, translation? 
I had just underlined this and had a check on it, and as you were talking, yeah. I reread it. That, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's not implied by the text at all. Verse 13, if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. Paul uh, writes in his epistle to the Ephesians, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. He's talking to believers. And to awake out of sleep, it's spiritual lethargy he's talking about, and they're moving in the sphere of death. Death can reign in the life of a believer just as surely as it can reign in the life of a lost man. Death, you see, once again, is what precipitates sin. I came into this world, the first case, in spiritual death, and that's what precipitates sin. The sting of death is sin. And so if I, if I uh, turn away to walk after the flesh, then death is what's going to follow. Well, the sphere of death, yeah. The sphere of death, it's spiritual death, yes, but it's the sphere of death. See, here's the sphere of death, and here's the sphere of life. And I can be brought into life. It's just like people here live like people that live over here, and they reap the benefits of it. If you give a lost man, let's illustrate this way. If you give a lost man the principles of family relationship, and he follows the principles of family relationship, he's going to enjoy the blessings of it. But he's in death. He's dead. By the same token, if you give to a regenerate man the principles of destruction in the kingdom of darkness and he walks after him, he's going to live death. See, there's the distinction. And Paul says the believer has a choice now. He can walk after the flesh and he can die, or he can walk after the spirit and he can live. Now, back, back you up to Romans 8, uh, 4. Right here. Right here. Yeah, you still, that's why I say if I'm still, I'm still a citizen, well, he's justified. I'm still a citizen of the United States. If I go into Mexico, I'm still a citizen of the United States, but I'm subject to the laws of Mexico if I've gone there. And they may be totally inconsistent with the laws of the United States, but I am subject to them if I went there. By uh, like token, anyone comes from any other foreign country into this country, he is subject to the laws of this country. Even though he is not a citizen of this country, he is subject to it. So if I move in the kingdom or the sphere of Satan, then I die. You follow? Now, uh, what is a spiritual experience could ultimately precipitate a physical experience. You got a case of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You have a person who is living in incest with his father's wife, and uh, he is living in death. Again, Paul said to his, in his epistle to Timothy, she that liveth in sin is dead while she yet liveth. Well, what is he saying? She's living in the sphere of life. Her, her existence is in the sphere of life, but her experience is in the sphere of death. So he says to the person in 1 Corinthians 5, or not to the person, but uh, to the believers in Corinth. He said, I've already judged my spirit being present with you that you commit such an one to Satan for the what? Destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the day of Christ. So what is he simply saying? Here's someone who has chosen darkness and death to walk in, so you give them physical death because they've chosen to walk in spiritual death, and you give it to them so their spirit can be saved in the day of Christ. See, they're still here, and God is very simple terms saying, they're going to kill them. They're going to give him to Satan to kill him so he can be raised in this life. He isn't going to walk in it here. So he might as well take, it out, take him out so he can walk in it there. I guess what I was trying to ask, in the sphere of, of life, mm -hmm. is it possible not to follow after the Holy Spirit and re remain in the Spirit? Absolutely. You see, we're not talking about being filled with the Spirit here. We're just talking about being in Christ. That's all we're talking about. Yes. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. 
you walk after the flesh, that's weakness. It won't work. That's law. The law is carnal. Yes? Jesus was made after the law of a, come on, carnal commandment. See, the law is weak. It isn't weak because of the law. It's weak because of me. See, I am carnal, soul, under sin. The law is righteous and holy and just and good, Paul said, but I'm carnal, soul, under sin. So the law is not able to perform. If I then appeal to the law, then I die. Death reigns. The letter what? Kills. Death. You see? He's still talking to believers, and he's talking about the way believers behave. I could sow law on you right now and kill you. I could very easily kill you with law. Run you a whole string of it, unless you understood the relationship of you to the law. Unless you understand that you've died to the law, then I could kill you with it. You find a body of very sincere believers, especially those who are bound up in legalism, and you tell them now, saints, the thing you've got to do is love God. Just go on out of here and love God. Hmm? All right, so I've killed you. You know why I've killed you? Because you can't love God. You don't have machinery. You've tried? Huh? You don't have machinery. But if I tell you on it, see, I've told you something that's true, but I haven't told you the truth. It's true you ought to love God, and the law is true, and righteous, and just, and holy, and good. But the truth has to include the whole picture, doesn't it? You with me? What is truth has to include the whole picture, and the whole picture is that, yes, I should love God, but I can't. That's the truth, but it still isn't all the truth. The rest of the truth is that God loves me anyhow. And that's when you move from law to grace. The law says you've got to love God. But after you've tried to love God, you found out you can't love God, then the grace of God comes along and says that's all right in spite of the fact that you can't love God, God will love you. Now there is John 1, uh, uh, 1 John 4.10. Herein is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the satisfaction of our sins. The psalmist said, I love the Lord because he loved me. Hmm? We love him, John said, because he first loved us. The whole message of gospel is that God is loving those who don't have the machinery to love him. And since I'm on this bunny path, <coughs> excuse me, that same principle <coughs> follows over to man-wife relationship. If I want my wife to love me, the only way I can do that is to love her. It doesn't do me any good to command my wife to love me. She isn't going to respond to that. She doesn't have machinery. God didn't create woman with the capability of responding to command. He created woman with the capability of responding to life. If I'll minister life to her, I'm going to get life in return from her. But if I minister death to her, I'm going to get death in return. Not necessarily because she wants to, but she doesn't have anything else to give except what I give her. Only one time in the New Testament Scripture is the word love used, English translation, is the word love used of a man's relationship, I'm sorry, of a woman's relationship to her wife. Paul writes in Titus that women ought to love their husbands, keepers at home, and etc. The Greek word is not agape, it's phileo, and it means to have an affection for. Women ought to have an affection for their husband. It's the same word which Paul uses with regard to Christ and the church, the believers, in 2 Corinthians 13. If any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And that's where it all starts. Faith and justification bring an affection. The word is phileo there. Bring an affection for the Lord Jesus. But they don't bring agape. Agape is produced by relationship. And as I walk with the Lord Jesus, I begin to understand that in spite of my wretched failings, he loves me. And the more he loves me, the more I respond in love to him. The same thing is true of husband-wife relationship. The more I love my wife, the more she responds in love to me. May I illustrate 
Will you forgive me one personal illustration? I went on the house, uh, I guess it was last Monday. What is today? Wednesday? All right, it was a week ago last Monday. I went out of the house because I wasn't home this last Monday, was I? Man, wasn't I gone? Yeah. Okay, it was a week ago Monday then. I went out with a couple of the other brethren to go repair something on one of them's ranch. And, and on the way down the hill, uh, it just occurred to me that uh, I would like to give my wife a rose. And there's a flower shop at the bottom of the hill. Just come on the highway, leave my place. So I stopped. I told this brother, I said, Franklin, turn in here real quick. So he turned in and I ran in there and I bought my wife one long stemmed rose. And I said, you delivered to her and I went on. And I forgot about it altogether. When I came back into the house, I had still forgotten about it. And I just walked in the house, and all of a sudden, my wife comes bursting out. There's that rose sitting on the table, you know, in the kitchen when I come in. And my wife comes bursting out of the back room and comes running around. Oh, thank you, honey, thank you. And I'm just getting loved on and kissed. And really, I didn't, I couldn't even figure out what in the world was happening. <laughs> See, you commit the act of love, and you create love. And we're trying to produce something uh, in the believer with some series of commands or regulations which God has already told us won't work. If his regulations wouldn't work, where do I get the idea my regulations are going to work? Can I improve on that? And so as has been said so often, all we really produce is something akin to a fence post in West Texas. It doesn't do this, it doesn't do that, but it doesn't respond either. It doesn't have any life either. It's just kind of stuck in a hole in the ground. So God is, is giving life to produce life. So the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And as, as the Spirit gives life, and life is responded to, and life is produced, then behavior follows with it. But you don't correct your behavior by putting up a rule against what you're doing that you don't like. You better skip that, because it didn't work before, did it? Never has worked. And I'm concerned that we have brought people into the body of Christ, and we've put them under the same thing they were under before, before they ever got saved, you know. It's like you lead the man to Jesus, and then you say to him, well, now here, that, since you're a believer, here's a s series of things that you need to keep in mind. You know, I start telling him all the things you ought not to do. <clears throat> or that he ought to do, etc. And he suddenly falls into despair. He says, well, good grief. These are the things I had problems with before. I thought I was getting away from that. Uh, you don't cure man's problem by setting up rules. You cure man's problem by substituting. You know, one other illustration. If you go out here and break a limb off one of these oak trees and throw it on the ground, next spring those leaves are still going to be on that limb. They'll be dead, dry leaves, but they'll still be on the limb. But if you leave the limb on the tree, new life will come in, push the dead leaves off and new leaves will come on. It is, the, it is the presence of life that moves out what is death. And so the closer you come into the relationship of life in Christ Jesus, the less are going to be the problems with death that precipitate from you. It is a matter of relationship. I think with that we can get back to where we were going. You see, that's what this is all about, relationship. Here you had a relationship in death, and because you had a relationship in death, the sting of death is sin, so that's what you produced, sins, because of sin. But now you have a relationship in life. And because you have a relationship in life, it's going to precipitate life. And here man starts out in the first man, Adam, after the fall, doing still a lot of good things. He has a conscience. It's still very, uh, what's the word I want? Sensitive, yes. He has a conscience and is still very sensitive before God. And as a result of that, the, the generations that came first out of Adam were reasonably uh, good in behavior, but they were still dead. Yes? Stages of death, they were still very dead. But the further we get away from Adam, the more rotten and decayed he becomes. Yes? All right, the same is true of the Lord Jesus. That man, when he first comes into Christ, he's got a lot of rotten and decayed things yet in him. 
But it is the life of the Lord Jesus that is moving those things out, and the further he grows away from the initial experience of regeneration, the more is the manifestation of the life and the character of Jesus Christ. And that becomes a reality as the believer walks in proximity with that life, as he draws off that life. That's why the New Testament Scripture admonishes the necessity of feeding on him. Jesus said, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. So feeding on him is an absolute essential if one is to be displaced by the other. Now, the difference is you either walk after the flesh, you move by the same motivations you had back here, or you walk in the spirit, you move by the new motivations that are given to you. As here, if you want to take a ridiculous example, I hope it's ridiculous anyhow, if you want to feed on the pornographic literature that can be purchased in certain bookstores, you're going to live death. But if you want to feed on the word of God, you're going to live life. If you walk after the flesh, you die. But if you walk after the spirit, you live. And it can be the experience of every believer right here. All right, now let's follow this in another illustration. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. Since we've come this far, I better go back. I wasn't going to do this, but talked about this last night. But apparently, uh, I'm beginning to get an impression of something in the midst of all of this. Um, <clears throat> I don't think really that there is as clear of understanding in us as perhaps we have thought about the distinction between what is flesh and what is spirit. What is walking after the flesh and what is walking after the spirit? Walking after the flesh isn't doing bad deeds. Walking after the flesh is anticipating some strength in your weakness, some ability in you. That's walking after the flesh. Walking after the Spirit is anticipating that all ability is in God, that you don't have any. And as a result of that, then, God is going to begin to deal with these problems that are in you. Don't let me... Uh, I want to take you to Canaan, so just hang in there a minute, all right? And don't let me forget where I am. You, This is... This is uh, uh, your time, you see, it's costing you because we're way off lesson now. All right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 14, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. In verse 15, he that is spiritual judges all things. And in chapter 3, verse 1, I could not write unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. All right, so we got three kinds of people. The natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal man. And the Greek word translated carnal here is the word sarkikos. It's the word flesh. Same word. word you were reading earlier in Romans 8 is the same Greek word that here appears translated carnal. So it is the man of the flesh. So you have the man after the, na uh, after the natural, a man after the spiritual, a man after the flesh. The Greek word translated natural here is the word suke, the word for soul. It is the same word that shows up in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and the God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. The word translated soul there is the same word here translated natural. It isn't evil. It isn't sinful. It just doesn't have any capability spiritually. You follow what we're saying? He is the natural man because he has no capability spiritually. He is what Jude says, twice dead, plucked out by the roots, having not spirit. You can just strike the spirit out of that man. And he is therefore moving by the only capability he has, the soul. That's why Paul says, can a man by searching find out God? Huh? Or Job, I'm sorry. And Paul says, when the world by wisdom knew not God, God chose by the foolishness of the thing preached to save them that believed. All right? So the soul is all the natural man has for capability. Therefore, he cannot perceive what is spiritual. Now, when a man gets saved, God restores spiritual life to that man. Yes? Is that right? Paul said, ye were, Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and in sin. All right? But now you're alive in Christ. Yes? So you've got spirit again. It wasn't that the spirit wasn't there, but that it was separate. Death is never annihilation. It's separation and chaos, disorganization. So now in resurrection... There is spiritual life brought again, and the Spirit can communicate to the soul. So now there is spiritual potential. Are you with me? There is spiritual potential. Because there is spiritual potential then, the natural or the soul is not left with no other vehicle other than itself. 
it now has the Spirit of God in it to govern its activity. Now, if the believer chooses to walk after the flesh, that simply means that this potential which is here is not being drawn upon. He's still walking here with the same potential that he had before he was saved. It's like uh, you heard the story about the fellow that, if you had him, I'll tell again anyway. The fellow that was uh, uh, riding down the road with his wagon, and he comes on the fellow walking by the road, and he's carrying this bale of hay on his back, and he stops and says, man, you must be exhausted, get in the wagon. So he climbs up in the wagon, and they start down the road, and he's still got the bale of hay on his back. And he said, man, why don't you throw that bale of hay on the back of the wagon? He says, oh, no, you've done enough for me. Now, God's carrying the load anyhow. And if we somehow or another, after we get on board, think that God has put this responsibility still in the same area that we had before we were saved. How foolish. One of the reasons that God has saved me is so that now I can have a new potential. And the new potential is his life here, bringing these two into one. But if I refuse to walk in the Spirit, then all I'm going to have left is soul, and that's flesh, weakness. Are you following me now? Okay, that's what the carnal man is then. He is the, he is the man who has a resurrected spirit. Life is his, but he only want to, wants to walk after the ability of the soul. And if he walks after the ability of the soul, then he dies because it can't perform. Now... We get all uptight. Come back to where I was going before. We get all uptight before God and with ourselves if we don't think that performance is coming out of us in a, in a, to an appropriate degree in righteousness. Don't we? Uh, we lose sight of the fact that God is dealing with the problems in us little by little. He's not curing all of your difficulties in one sweep of his righteous wand. Now, how did the children of Israel come in the land of Canaan? Cross the river Jordan, marvelous victory at Jericho, and then God gives a promise. He says, I am not going. As a matter of fact, he told this to Moses. He said, I am not going to destroy the peoples of this land all at once, but little by little, lest the beast of the field should multiply against you. I'm not going to come to the tree and rake off all the dead leaves. I'm going to start putting out new leaves. And as I put out new leaves, old leaves are going to fall off. Now, those things that you're concerned about that are experiences of the flesh in your life, let me serve notice on you, beloved. God isn't worried about them. You're the one that's worried about them. God isn't worried about them. He's dealing with them little by little. And as you draw nigh to him, new life comes in, old characteristics go out. The only distinction is, will you draw nigh to him? What does the tree do to produce new leaves? Struggles, twists, cries out, intercedes, calls on the Lord. Huh? Does it? No. All it does is keep its roots in the ground, doesn't it? There's a natural process with keeping its roots in the ground that make water come into them. And it just opens its leaves to the heavens and the sun shines on them. Can't make the sun shine. Just opens its leaves to the heavens and the sun shine on it and life is produced. There's a whole process of life that automatically goes on inside the tree. I think we call it something like photosynthesis, don't we? That's a transfer of light. And as light is transferred, then life is produced. Isn't that the theme of John's first epistle? I feel like I've quit teaching and gone to preaching now. I'm laboring a point. I recognize. You all forgive that, huh? The theme of John's first epistle, the first two chapters deal with light. The second two chapters deal with love. And the last chapter deals with life. That's the pattern. Hmm? That Jesus Christ has come life that brings light that bring I'm sorry, light that brings life that brings love. 
And we're down there looking for love, since I've come this far, go with me to Romans 5. We're down there looking for love, and we're expecting that to pop onto us all of a sudden, but you mature in love. You start out with an affection, and then you mature in love. Watch the process. Verse 3 and following, not only so we glory in tribulations, knowing also that tribulation works patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. Hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit's given us. How do you get the love of God shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit given unto you? Go through all these things. Hmm? Tribulations, patience, experience, hope, love. You follow that? And really, beloved, no believer is going to know what it is to love with the kind of love with which God loves until he's been through tribulation, patience, experience, and hope. Okay, there are some terms then. There are a lot of terms that we probably ought to define in this, but there are some that are particularly important. Maybe I can run them by without writing them on the board. Uh, first, let me simply define the word justification. I've already done this for you, but I'm going to give it to you again. The word justified is, a, is that judicial decree whereby the believing sinner is declared righteous in the court of heaven. I'll run it by again. Justification is that judicial decree or act of God, if you would, whereby the believing sinner is declared righteous in the court of heaven. Justification. Or if you want to oversimplify it, just as if I'd never sinned. It does not, this is a commentary on that definition now, it does not imply pardon, it declares acquittal. Excuse me. It does not imply pardon, it declares acquittal. I think we all gather the distinction there. Very important. If you were pardoned, then your sin remains with you. If you were acquitted, you were never guilty. And God um, establishes you in a position where no guilt can be found. As far as God is concerned, you were never guilty. All right, the second word, salvation. Now this word, before I give you the definition, I want you to understand that this word through the New Testament Scripture is used in an abundance of different ways. It has to do with people being delivered from temporal circumstances. It has to do with their, it's used of their being healed physically. It's used of their being saved from the old man, from sin, from being saved from the wrath of God. It is an abundant word. So salvation then is the wholeness of God brought to the child of God. Salvation is the wholeness of God brought to the child of God. Parenthetically, if you want an Old Testament equivalent term, it is the word shalom. We translate shalom how? Peace. But it's a lot more than that, isn't it? It is prosperity. It is blessing. Uh, you can go on with the meanings of the word uh, shalom. So the salvation of God is the wholeness of God brought to the believing sinner. The third word, sanctification. Sanctification is the, is the word hagios, and the Greek word hagios is translated in the New Testament Scripture, saint, sanctify, holy, and forms thereof. Holiness, and so on down the line. The word sanctify means to be separated unto, to be separated unto. Or if you want another phrase that may touch you better, to be set apart for, to be set apart for. Now the word had its origin in pagan usage. The, the uh, prostitutes that served in the brothels in Corinth were called saints. And Paul takes the same term and applies it to the children of God because they are holy ones unto the Lord. Now I have to tell you in this case what it does not mean. It does not mean righteous. 
Righteousness implies a moral character. Sanctify does not. Did you all get that now? I want you to look with me. Book of Exodus, I want to illustrate. Chapter 28 and verse 38. Maybe I'll start with verse 36. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 36. I want to illustrate the word sanctify. This is a Hebrew term, the word godesh, but it means the same thing as the Hebrew, as the Greek uh, hagios. The word godesh and the word hagios mean the same thing. One Hebrew, one Greek. They are holy. Word holy. Exodus chapter 28, verse 36. Thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holiness unto the Lord. That's what the priest wore on his turban, holiness unto the Lord. Verse 37. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be, and it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things. Do you see the distinction now? So they can bear the iniquity of the holy things. That's what I'm coming to. That's the whole issue. See, the word holy does not imply righteousness. The word holy implies separated unto. So God comes to the unrighteous thing and separates it unto himself. And then he begins to make it righteous. You see? That's why then Aaron is to bear the iniquity of the holy things. They are separated things, so what are you going to do with this sin? Well, Aaron's going to bear it. Who is Aaron? He is the high priest. What is the high priest a figure of? The Lord Jesus. You see? So the Lord Jesus has borne the iniquity of the holy things. So the word holy means simply to be separated unto, and let's face it, beloved, in practical terms, a lot of believers are very unrighteous, but all of them very holy. So the word holy and the word sanctified and the word saint are the same Greek word. So for this reason, Paul could write to the Corinthian believers and say to the saints in Christ at Corinth, are ye not carnal? They are the set-apart ones. Um, they are the separated unto him ones. Now, sanctification, like many of these words, is in three tenses in my experience. I am sanctified, I am being sanctified, and I will be sanctified. I am sanctified from the penalty of sin, say the same thing of saved, for example. I am sanctified from the penalty of sin or the defilement of sin. I am being sanctified. I should say it this way, I'm sorry. I am sanctified from the penalty of sin. I'm being sanctified from the defilement of sin. I will be sanctified from the presence of sin. Separated unto. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. That's the call to holiness. The call to holiness is separation. Uh, God is a holy God, isn't he? Well, what does that mean? That he's righteous? Well, certainly he's righteous, but that's not what he's saying. God is a holy God in the sense that he is wholly separated from everything. God is separate and unique in his person and existence. So the admonition, be ye holy, for I, the Lord thy God, am holy. What is he saying? Be separated unto him. That, I think, if some believers would get that through their head, it would ease a lot of their burdens. You know, what they're really saying when they say, be ye holy, is be ye righteous. And when you say to sin, be ye righteous, you know, they fall flat on their face. They've been trying that for so long, and it wasn't working too well. But if you said to them, be ye holy, with an understanding of what the word holy meant, it means separate yourself to the Lord. And when you separate yourself to the Lord, then you begin to draw his life. Then righteousness begins to follow from that. Do you see? 
There is proximity with righteousness produces righteousness. But you come apart in holiness to him. You separate unto him. And one will begin to produce the other then. So the word holy or saint or sanctify, same word, mean to be separated unto. There is the negative side of this in 1, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4. You can pursue yourself. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from. And he begins to list the carnalities of the world that the believer is to separate himself from. All right, the next word, regeneration. The word regeneration means to put new life in or to re-beget life. Titus 3, 5. It is the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's putting new life in. Regeneration, putting new life in, is equivalent to being born again. When you're born again, you are regenerated. Somebody's dead and you regenerate them, you put new life in them, you've raised them from the dead, there's new birth. Regeneration is never to be confused with justification. You can be justified, not regenerated. Abraham was justified, but he was not regenerated. Regeneration belongs to the resurrection and the advent of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration comes to us by the advent of the Holy Spirit. All right, the next word, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconcile, to reconcile means to bring into consistency with a standard, to make consistent with a standard. I was chairing a, our brother Jones' home here a few nights back, some of the saints that meet there in Kerrville, that this is what I do with my bank statement once a year. <laughs> I reconcile my bank statement once a year. I bring it up to the standard. It's always up. I've never had to... Uh, uh, I've never found that the bank had uh, uh, more money than I said they did. They always seem to have less money than I think they do. So I have to bring it up to the standard, you see. I have to reconcile myself to the bank. That's what God did with us in Christ. He has brought us up to the standard. He has reconciled himself to us and us to him. How? By the blood of his cross. Colossians chapter 1. He has reconciled the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto him. Reconciled us to himself through the cross, that is, by the blood of his cross, um, and that reconciliation was God imparting righteousness to us so that we could be his standard, and as we are his standard, then we can come and be reconciled to God. I'll explain what I just said. Reconciliation is in two parts. First, God reconciles me to himself by establishing righteousness in my behalf in the heavens. Next, I am besought, 2 Corinthians 5, we praise you in Christ that be ye reconciled to God. We are besought to be reconciled to God by faith, or in other words, to acknowledge the fact that God is no longer angry with us. God no longer finds a discrepancy in our account. Reconciliation is very beautifully illustrated in the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. Imputation is also very beautifully uh, illustrated. We're going to give you that word in a moment. Reconciliation is illustrated in Paul's words to Philemon regarding Onesimus. Onesimus, you remember, was Philemon's runaway slave, and he encountered Paul in Rome. Paul led him to Christ. He goes back now to the one from whom he has run away to be a slave again. And when Paul sent him back, he said, If he owes you anything, put that to my account. There is reconciliation, you see. Now, how is reconciliation accomplished? By imputation. You can't just reconcile somebody without having something there to balance the account. I can't balance my account with a bank if I don't have enough money. So I've got to, well, in God's case, I didn't. So he came and gave me what I didn't have in Christ. That was imputation. So that's your next word, imputation. 
is the act where God whereby God reckons to me the righteousness of God and reckons to Christ the sin of man. The imputation is that act whereby God reckons to me the righteousness of Christ and reckons to Christ the sinfulness of man. As I said to you earlier, there are three great imputations in the Scripture. The imputation of the of uh, the sin of Adam to the human race, the sin of the human race to Christ, and the righteousness of Christ to the believing sinner. Okay, anyone have any questions? Under reconciliation, we're reconciled to God when we admit that he is no longer when we realize the Holy Jesus. We are reconciled to God when we believe the record that God gave concerning his Son. When we receive him, we are reconciled to God. See, Christ is the reconciliation, and it is by Christ God has reconciled me. It is as though, for example, God, my, bank, uh, my bank balance is out of Kelter. The bank says I have $50, and my book says I've got $100, and I've written checks on the $100. Well, I've got a problem, obviously. And so another man comes in, and he puts down the $50 difference. And he says, now I have reconciled the account. Here's the $50. All right, he is rec- the bank is reconciled to me, but I am not reconciled to him until I appropriate $50. All right, God has given me a reconciliation in Christ. And he says, now you be reconciled to God. When I appropriate Christ, then I'm reconciled to God. But in the meantime, God's not angry with me anymore, but I'm still angry with him. That's why Jesus said, "Go if your brother's got an offense against you, go be reconciled to your brother. See, go make it right. Uh, fear always brings hatred. Fear always breeds hatred. I don't know if you could define it with the word frustration properly or not, but a thing we fear that we can't do anything about, that we have no control over, that brings a frustration on us because of our inability to control it, and that, bring, that comes out then in anger, hatred. And man has been in animosity, at enmity against God, as Paul put it. Man is at enmity against God, and because man is at enmity against God, uh, God comes by the blood, reconciles man to himself, and says he's put away by the cross the enmity in the law and commandments. And the enmity was produced, Paul said in Galatians, by the law and commandments. God said, this do, and I say, I can't do it, and I get angry. Yes? If I am then going to be reconciled to God, I first of all have to acknowledge that God isn't calling on me for anything I can't do. And so I put away my anger when I realize that he has no anger, that I don't need to fear him. This is what Zechariah prayed, or prophesied, I should say, in Luke chapter 1 at the birth of uh, John the Baptist. He said, now we have a Savior come so that we can serve him without fear. We don't have to be afraid of him anymore. It's interesting to me that this is one of the things that so struck Martin Luther. Uh, He... Uh, was angry with God because God was calling on him to love him and he couldn't love God. And he finally told his, uh, his superior that uh, uh, when he was confessing his sin, he said, I, the, my problem is, he said, I just don't love God. I can't love God. He said, he's calling on me to do something I can't do. I can't love God. I can't love God like that. It was not until he realized that God had already forgiven him that all that anger in his heart went away. He knew God wasn't mad at him. But he thought God was mad at him. He thought God was a bully up in the heavens with a club beating him every time he did something wrong. And when when he realized God wasn't angry with him and God wasn't a bully in the heavens with a club and that God had already forgiven him on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ and that I'm justified by faith, not by works, then all his anger went away. Well, that's a different thing. Fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord is clean during forever. There's a difference between fearing God and being afraid of God. I feared my father, but I wasn't afraid of him. I could come jump in his lap, say anything to him anytime I wanted to. But uh, let me get in this... Hmm? 
That, uh, w which one? Fear. Oh, all right. Reverential fear. It's a reverential trust. Uh, the Hebrew word is defined, I think, as a reverential trust, a reverence for. The God that is feared is reverenced. If you reverence him, then it provokes obedience. You know that, that uh, disobedience toward him is going to bring chastening. And here again, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So you're not afraid of him. You're going to have uh, perfect intimacy and communion with him. But walk in obedience to him. You have a reverence for him that calls for an obedience because you know that disobedience is going to bring chastening. So it is a reverential... Mm -hmm. It's a reverential trust. Excuse me. Go ahead. I'm through. <laughs> Well, again, this is another characteristic of the Old Testament uh, regulations. You govern children by schoolmaster regulations, uh, precepts is the word I'm after. You govern children by precepts, but after they mature, they don't need the precepts anymore when they've learned the principles of righteousness. You know, the precept is don't run across the street. The principle is you might get hit by a car. Well, a little child, you know, he doesn't think in those terms. All he sees is something on the other side of the street he wants to get to and he runs across the street. So you govern him with precept. And he may not like that. And they might start to run across the street and you grab them to stop them from running across the street. And you spank them for running across the street and they may get real upset about that because they're children. But as they begin to mature, if they react the same way to that then, you see the immaturity has hung on and chastening is going to follow. Severe chastening is going to follow. There is such a thing then as, uh, as the, the regulatory systems which are, uh, which the law, of which the law is a good example, which teach us the value of obedience. But as we come into a New Testament economy, then the law is done away and we're made sons in Christ by the advent of the Holy Spirit. Now we're supposed to move by the principle. But we're still dealing frequently with children in the flesh and children in the spirit. And so there are regulations that are placed upon them. Now, having said that, Betty, let me say this that quite often the manner in which we regulate children and discipline them does not come with a discipline of, of reverential fear. It comes with a discipline of terror. And there's really a, there's a big difference there. You can chasten a child in love or you can chasten a child in anger. And the child will feel the anger and he'll react against the anger. Again, you know, no reconciliation. But if you chasten the child in love, he's going to feel the love. He'll feel the chastening, but he'll feel the love too. He'll respond. And the fear of the Lord is clean. See, the chastening that God gives is clean. And when it's done, it's done for a specific reason. It isn't done, in, done with, a, with a lingering animosity. It's done to accomplish a specific end. And when it's done, it's done. God will not always chide, and he'll keep anger forever. But the kind of terror that man puts on us is a terror that holds a threat over me. And God doesn't threaten anyone. And the reason it grieves me, it isn't clean because that fear, that kind of fear, fear is impure because it leaves a question in my mind as to the affection of the person whom I fear has toward me. Have I made that plain? Obviously, I have not made that plain. All right, which is it easier to obey? Somebody that loves you or somebody that hates you? All right, that goes without saying, I think. Okay, so God is establishing then first his love toward me. And then he gives a command in love. If you love me, keep my commandments. Huh? Well, the law didn't say that. The law just said, keep my commandments, and if you don't, you'll get it. But we come over into the New Testament economy, and it's quite a different thing. 
So we provoke love to get obedience. We don't provoke obedience to get love. The whole issue is really communion, uh, um, intimacy with. The whole issue is settled with intimacy. You, you discipline your children. If you are in intimacy with your children and you discipline your children, there is no threat in your children. They don't feel that threat. But if you're separated from your children, if they're over there and you're over here, if there is never any communion with you and your children, then they feel threatened by you. And they'll react against that. You can discipline all you want to, but they will react against that. But if you love them, then you can discipline them with all freedom because they know of a surety that whatever you're doing, you're doing out of your heart of love. They might not agree with it. They might not even like it, but they know you're going to do it out of heart of love because you care for them. As one old brother said one time with regard to a preacher-flock relationship, he said, if your people know that you love them, you can say anything to them you want to. That's true. I find that to be true. I've known some men in my past uh, traditional relationships who were very hard on their flock, but their flock knew that they loved them. What they did was wrong as far as I was concerned. Dead wrong. Literally dead wrong. It issued in death. But they knew that he loved them and so they took it. The fear of the Lord is clean because he loves us. Okay. I want to give you two more and I think this will be sufficient for our pursuits here. The first one, uh, the word atonement. Somebody has broken the word atonement down like that at one meant. That's an interesting thought to bring into one with. But in fact, that really is not all that's involved in it. The word atonement is, again, the translation of the Hebrew word kephar, or kipper, yom kipper, as it comes over. I think it's pretty well influenced by Yiddish. But uh, the word kephar means to cover. And the Old Testament word atonement suggested the covering on sin which God provided through the blood of bulls and goats. So Leviticus 17:11, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar for an atonement for your soul, for a covering for your soul. When the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt and they were sojourning through the desert, Balak called Balaam to come curse Israel. You remember that? To make a long story short, he got him up on that mount. Balaam looked down over Israel and he said, I cannot, he said, curse this people for me. And he said, I cannot speak, say what God the Lord would give him to speak. Now, what kind of people was he looking at? Very nice, righteous, obedient people? Not hardly. Disobedient, murmuring, rebellious, whatever you want to say about them, that's what they were. Licentious, immoral, that may never what you say about them. You can find justification for it in the records of Numbers and uh, Exodus. Uh, they made the golden calf, sat down to eat, and rose up to play, and we cannot define in mixed company what they meant by rose up to play. They were quite a bunch. And yet when Balaam looked down over that people and said, I cannot speak, say what God the Lord would give me to speak, what did he say? I see no sin in Israel. I see no perversity in Jacob. How could he say that? Because he was looking at the blood covering. The blood was covering. You see, there was atonement in the people. Remarkable thing was he go on. He went on to say, "There's a shout of a king in the camp." Isn't that amazing? <laughs> That's not the kind of shout that the natural ear heard. All right. So the word atonement means to cover, and it is the word which in Scripture makes reference to the covering of sin under the old covenant economy. It is the covering of sin under the old covenant economy. To use that word then in a New Testament relationship is wholly erroneous. The word atonement is never used in a New Testament relationship. It is translated that way one time in Romans chapter 5, but it is a mistranslation of the word reconciliation. It is a mistranslation of the word reconciliation. Perhaps I ought to draw your attention to the word. Chapter 11, I'm sorry, chapter 5 and verse 11 of Romans 5. And not only so, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have received, King James says, the atonement, 
The Greek word is reconciliation. If you have a noted Bible, it will point that out to you. The word atonement is never used in the New Testament with reference to the expiation of sin. It's used in the Gospels, but that's not New Testament. All right, the word which goes with it then is the word propitiation. Now, another word for propitiation is the word satisfaction. When you read the word propitiation, by the way, don't call that propitiation, it's propitiation. When you read the word propitiation, it is in fact satisfaction. It is the word helasmos. It is a satisfaction. It makes reference to the place where the blood was sprinkled, whereby God was completely satisfied. The Lord Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My, my. I'm hung up on chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. All right. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So Jesus Christ has become the satisfaction of the sin of the world. All right? Propitiation, then, is final satisfaction made for all sin. For the believer and for the unbeliever. It is final satisfaction made for all sin. Now, I must point something out here. Since he said Christ is the propitiation for our sin, not for ours only, but also for the whole world, remember this, that the propitiation of Christ, or the satisfaction of Christ, has dealt with finally the guilt of all sin before God for everyone who ever has or ever will live. And that because of that, man does not go to hell because he is a sinner, because satisfaction is made for all sin, including the guy that ends up in hell. He ends up in hell because he has not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. Nobody goes to hell because there's a sin. they're a sinner. They go to hell because they don't believe. Anyone not understand that? Go with me to John 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 17. You're quite familiar with verse 16. Verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now there is Christ, the satisfaction for all the world. Verse 18 now. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Now why does he give the re uh, what reason does he give? Because he's a sinner? No, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Man is condemned then. The man who ends up in hell, in other words, ends up there not because he is a sinner, because Christ came into the world to die for the sin of the world. But he ends up there because he refuses to believe. Now we're back to our word reconciliation. God is reconciled to all the world, but all the world is not reconciled to him. So as I believe God, I am reconciled to God, and those who refuse to believe God are never reconciled to God, and therefore the same cross which was intended to save them will finally judge them. Do you see? John 5, 22. The Father judges no man, but he has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. The Son is the only one who has the right to judge, and he has the right to judge because he's paid the price. So he will judge on the basis of the price being paid but not received. Is that quite plain? Verse 19 then, I want to go on since I'm here. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Do you see that? Refuse to believe. Men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth the truth, not do what, doing what is true, but doing the truth, 
cometh to the light, that his deeds might be made manifest that they are wrought in God, or that God did them, in other words. Okay, I've given you eight words, have I not? Or did I miss a lot? something? Justification, salvation, sanctification, regeneration, reconciliation, atonement, and satisfaction. Anyone have any questions? Well, I don't care for the word expiation for two reasons. Uh, it's a very high-sounding word, and certainly it says yes to uh, bring about a satisfaction or to put away sin or to pay the price for or to dissolve guilt. But it's a little too high-sounding for me. I guess maybe I'm a country boy, you know, and I, I don't care for something that does not appeal to, to the individual where he is. And as far as I'm concerned, to satisfy a debt, people understand. You tell somebody that he expiated a debt and they'll look at you with a lifted eyebrow, you know. Yes, it bears the same meaning. It bears the same meaning, yes. The Greek word is helasmos, also another form of the word, different emphasis, hilasterion, the place of satisfaction, and it addresses the mercy seat. The mercy seat was over the Ark of the Covenant. You remember your description of, uh, of the um, tabernacle of Moses, that the Ark of the Covenant was two cubits by a cubit and a half, Two cubits by a cubit and a half, and inside the Ark of the Covenant was the tables of law, the pot of manna, and Aaron's rod. You remember that? All of these are indicative of something. The tables of law, the righteousness of God, the rod of Aaron, the priestly ministry of Christ, and the pot of manna, the life of Christ. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, they are dead. I am that living bread that came down from heaven, John 6. So all of these things are a picture of Christ, the righteousness of God in him, the life of the Lord Jesus imparted to us, and the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus, all of these were in the Ark of the Covenant. Over top of the Ark of the Covenant then was placed the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the seventh piece of furniture. The Ark of the Covenant was the sixth. It speaks to the death of Christ. It is a coffin, the Greek, Greek word. Other language? Hebrew word. Ark is the same word as coffin, is the same word as treasure chest. When we bury somebody's body, we usually make reference to this that the coffin is in fact a treasure chest. You're putting it in there so you can get it back again. You're preserving it until you can get it back again in resurrection. All right, over that then was placed the mercy seat. Now when the law was put into the coffin, which speaks to the death of Christ, the body of Christ, when the law was placed in the coffin, then it was buried and we had died to it. Are you following? And the mercy seat covered it and the Father was seated on the mercy seat. He was the glory that sat between the cherubim, you remember? And then Christ ascended into the heavenlies and he sat down on the right hand of the Father. So here both of them are sitting on the mercy seat. The place of the helasmos, the satisfaction, the blood is sprinkled here. Now the mercy seat need never be lifted. If you lift the mercy seat and look in, you see the law and you die. Yes? But now there is a finished work here. The rod and the pot of manna and the law are all in the ark. It is a finished work. The mercy seat is on top of it. God is sitting on the mercy seat. Christ is sitting on the mercy seat. You can't get them off. God is thoroughly satisfied. Do you see the end of the matter then? Okay, anyone else have any questions? What's the connotation of the rod? In, in almond rod, yes. It was an almond rod, and it budded and blossomed and brought forth fruit. You remember there was a question that uh, rose up in, uh, in the uh, tribes of Israel as to who was God's priest. And they said, well, we can all be a priest to the Lord. And so, and God had not finished the priesthood yet. The priesthood of Aaron figures the priesthood of Christ. The individual believer's priesthood is not figured here. The, uh, uh, several of the others uh, began to claim right to priesthood, and so, and like Miriam, for example, 
And so God says to Moses, Moses, you get all the elders of Israel, tell every elder of, the, of every tribe of Israel, he's going to establish which tribe is the priestly tribe. Levi's the priestly tribe. That's what he's going to establish. He said, you get everyone of them here, bring their rod, and you put their rods into the holiest in the tabernacle. And tomorrow morning you go back and get the rods, and the rod that buds, blossoms, and bring forth fruit. It's that rod that I've chosen. So they put all of them their rods in. Their rods were their identity. And the next morning they came back, and only Aaron's rod, which was an almond rod, budded, blossomed, and brought forth fruit. And the almond tree in the Scripture speaks to priestly ministry. The ministry of Christ and his priesthood, this might be a good idea to mention, though it is not specifically related to what we're talking about. It might be helpful to note this. That Jesus had two priestly ministries. The, the Aaronic ministry of Christ and the Melchizedek ministry of Christ. The Aaronic ministry of Christ was a priesthood of time and sacrifice. So, when the rod was placed into the Ark of the Covenant, God was saying that the sacrifice was finished. You see? And it was buried. Jesus went into the grave as Aaron. He came out of the grave as Melchizedek. Priest of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And the ministry of Melchizedek is not time and sacrifice. Jesus came into time to work the sacrifice, but he said it is finished. Aaron was finished. Sacrifice was made, never to be repeated. Jesus offered himself once for the sin of the world. Hebrews 9, 26 and following. But the Melchizedek ministry of Christ, that priestly ministry so spoken to in the epistle of the Hebrews, is a priesthood of eternity and intercession. So now he is before the Father permanently. He ever liveth to make intercession for all those who will come unto God by him. Because he has gone into the place of death, he can come out as the intercessor. Because he has become what we are, he can speak in our behalf. He himself was tempted in all points like as we are. Yes. So he speaks in our behalf. This is the ever-living priesthood. This is the dying priesthood. So the, the uh, rod then was placed in the coffin and left there. And the mercy of seat is placed on it because it is a finished work. Christ has died once for the sin of the world. And that rod bore our sin. Do you see that? Yes. That's right. That. Not anymore. No. They would if they had their temple. They would carry on this. Of course, they wouldn't have these things. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have uh, the pot of manna. They don't have the rod or, or the uh, tables of the law. If they had the Ark of the Covenant and the temple, they would carry on this ceremony again. They'd go through the Day of Atonement again, but they would be doing the same thing that the Jews were doing in the days of the Epistle to the Hebrews. They were offering a form of sacrifice, but there is no more sacrifice for sin. That's the meaning of 9.26 of Hebrews. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. They were just carrying on an empty order. The veil of the temple had been rent in twain from top to the bottom. God had made the way into the holiest, and they went back and sewed it together again. See, Start all over again. Paul said, you blew it. You missed the whole point. The, the name Melchizedek is in itself interesting. You remember the fellow Melchizedek in the Old Testament who was a figure of this ministry of the Lord Jesus? He was king of a town called Salem. Salem means peace. Salem was ancient Jerusalem. Jerusalem's had several names. Salem, Jerusalem, Jebus. And Jerusalem means foundation of peace. Salem just means peace. And Melchizedek was king of peace. And his name means king of righteousness. Malek and Sidkenu, king of righteousness. So he is king of righteousness and king of peace, all of which encompasses the ministry of Christ at the right hand of the Father in our behalf right now. He is king of righteousness. He's established righteousness once for all and I am righteous in him. He is king of peace. 
Because of that he is ministering peace to his people. My peace I give unto you, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you, neither let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be. What do you mean when you say not as the world giveth, give I unto you? The peace of the world is based on circumstances. Peace of God has nothing to do with circumstances. All the circumstances can be totally wrong. You're still peace. That's why the world considers the child of God as the most irresponsible individual going. He never seems to worry about anything they ought to worry about. Here's the world going to pot. You know, why aren't you worried? Well, why should I worry? 